0: Hey, we are continuing this series in Romans. Today is a very challenging sermon, a very challenging passage, and I want to, I'm really anxious to share it with you today because I think it, it will really help us in some ways that maybe we don't even know we need help at times. Today's sermon title is Answering Our Jewish Arguments. Now you may look at that and go, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not Jewish. I have no Jewish arguments, right? I mean, uh, what do I have to argue about as a Jew? Well, today what we're going to see is some arguments that Paul is uh, kind of talking about with the Jews that he's writing to in the Roman churches. And while we may not be Jews, we may see that we have some of the same uh, similar arguments that Paul knew the Jews would have. And so while we may not be Jewish, we have sometimes the same logic to believe untruths about things. So Paul's just finished telling the Jews in the churches at Rome, if you remember last week, we looked at chapter 2, and he just got through telling them, for you are not a true Jew because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. Now undoubtedly, Paul had been in this debate with Jews before in his missionary journeys. This wasn't something new to him. Okay, every time he spoke to Jews, I'm sure they had the same kind of uh, uh, conversations, the same arguments. So now he's going to go ahead and answer some of the questions in this letter that he knows many of them would ask if he was there. Uh, Many of them would ask these things to his face if he was sitting there, but because he's not, he's basically writing and saying, okay, I know you're going to ask this, so let me just go ahead and approach it. So he's answering his opponents before they even have the chance to present their arguments because he knows they're just like, really, any other Jewish believers, and to some degree, I would say they're like all men everywhere. So let's look at Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and if we don't see ourselves yet, maybe we will in a few moments. Here's what it says. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, What if some were unfaithful? Does that faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now some of the wording here is a little challenging for us, but I think it'll make some sense as we talk about it. So Paul here uh, is uh, supposing that after he argues their outward Jewish religious practices are not the same as someone whose heart is right with God, he suspects they will swing the pendulum respond. So you're saying there's no benefit at all to being a Jew, right? No benefit to being a part of God's chosen people. You see, he's just got through saying, listen, if you get uh, circumcision and you uh, are part of the Jewish nation and you, you say you believe the law, but you don't really believe the law, you don't really act in faith towards God, you're not really a Jew in the heart. So now they swing the pendulum way over here and say, okay, so you're saying that there's no benefit to being a Jew at all? No. What he's saying is there are benefits of being a Jew and knowing about God. Back in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, this is what he says. Then what advantage has the Jews? See, he's speaking for them. He's, he's asking the question for them. Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, he answers. To begin with, by the way, that means there's more things. But to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So he responds, of course there's benefit. Guys, don't swing the pendulum over here and say, okay, so there's no benefit at all, right? No, that's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. In fact, there are a whole bunch of benefits. He's saying, but let's start with one. Okay, Uh, here's a big one. The Jews were trusted with the oracles of God. What he's saying is, listen, you guys know God's character. The Gentiles didn't. You know the history of faith of your people. You know the miracles and the faithfulness of God. We as the Jews, because he was one of them, remember, we as Jews, we are the keepers and protectors in history of God's law, the Old Testament. This is but one of the benefits of being a Jew. He's saying, listen, there's there's a lot of benefits to being a Jew. Jew. Uh, And and one of the big ones is we've had the law. We've had the written uh, Old Testament word of God. We've had the oracles of God but that does not mean you get an automatic pass because of your heritage. See, what he's saying is there's benefit, but that doesn't mean you are automatically saved. You have salvation in God just because you were born a Jew. Now, how does this apply to us? Well, here's how it applies to us pretty, pretty clearly. No one is a true Christian by being born into a Christian family. Nobody's a true Christian by going to a good church. Nobody's a true Christian by being born into a Christian country. Nobody's a true Christian just because they're taught good moral principles. Nobody's a true Christian because you have godly people in your life. While well, these are all benefits. These are all good and healthy and wonderful things that I wish we all had, and they may increase our chance in knowing God and His will. They are not a guarantee of our salvation. That's what Paul's trying to get at. He introduced this idea in chapter 1 when he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, remember? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not everyone who was born a Jew. Everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, the gospel is... Not who you're born into as a family, who you're born into as a church, where you go to church, what, you, uh, what name you have, what, all these other things that people look at sometimes. The gospel, as Paul's going to clearly share with us, I don't want to ruin the, the movie for you, but later he's going to be very clear that the gospel is the fact that God sent his son Jesus to the earth to die on the cross to pay for our sins. His answer to the Jews swinging the pendulum is that, listen, you've got a leg up. You kind of know who God is. You've got a good head start. But that doesn't guarantee you're going to cross the finish line. This is a picture of Queen Victoria when she was a child. She didn't know she was in line for the throne of England. Her instructors, trying to prepare her for the future, were very frustrated because they couldn't motivate her. They couldn't get her to do her studies. She just didn't take them seriously. Finally, her teachers decided to tell her that one day she would become the Queen of England. Upon hearing this, here she is as an old lady, Victoria quietly said, Oh, then I will be good. You see, the realization that she had inherited this high calling gave her a sense of responsibility that profoundly affected her conduct really from then on. They never had any more problems with her. I mean, even Spider-Man knows that with great power comes great responsibility, right? And what Paul's saying here is, listen, listen. I'm not saying that that being a Jew means nothing. I'm saying that it's a leg up. Listen, if you were born to good, godly Christian parents who taught you from birth that, that... you should love Jesus, that you should put your faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross to pay for your sins, that you should love God, that you should participate in a Bible-believing church. If you had good, godly parents that taught you that, listen, you had a leg up. You had a great start. (laughs) You had a great foundation to build on that many of us, many of us did not. But that doesn't mean you'll finish the race. That takes a personal decision on your part. A personal decision on our part. Once we have that great power, once we have that leg up, it takes a responsibility to respond to Jesus. Paul is saying that having a good history and a knowledge of God is a great benefit, but it's not the final answer in and of itself. And so he's answered their question already. So then being a Jew means nothing? No, it does mean something, but it doesn't mean everything. Then he goes on to, Expressed to us that God is always true to His promises, even when men are not. Look in verses three and four. It says, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithful faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Their next argument is probably, okay, but wait, I thought we were God's chosen people with a guarantee of salvation, right? Are you saying God is not going to fulfill his promises to us, that somehow God is unfaithful to us? Paul's saying, no, 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 I'm not saying that at all. Just because the outcome isn't what you thought it would be doesn't mean he didn't fulfill his promise. What it really means is you didn't fulfill your promise. We didn't fulfill our promise. Remember, God's people were promised a Messiah. They were promised a Savior, and they, and they promised God to follow him and be faithful to him. Over and over they promised it, and over and over they broke that promise. Yet when that Messiah came on the scene, they rejected him, and they killed him. You see, it's not God who didn't fulfill his promise. It is sinful man. And specifically, what Paul's talking about is the Jews that haven't fulfilled theirs. Now, many of these Jews were so wrapped up in their religiosity, as we saw last week, that they couldn't recognize their Savior when He was standing right in front of them. God has revealed Himself in the most perfect way, folks, through Jesus, and still people ignore Him, still people reject Him. Still, people disregard him. Still, people outright hate him. Paul's letting them know that there are no automatic passes in life. In fact, he's going to introduce soon to them the concept that they needed to make a personal decision to follow Jesus. In fact, many of the Jews at this point had accepted, had kind of accepted who Jesus was, but they had not really yet accepted what Jesus did. And the gospel is both, folks. It's both understanding who the Messiah is and what he did to pay for our sins. It's not just one. It's not just the other. It's both. And Paul's saying to them, folks, if, if, if you were relying on your circumcision or some outward sign or, or, or reading or trying to obey the law, if you were relying on that to bridge this gap between you and God, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Because that's not enough. That's not enough. The last thing I want you to see in this passage is this. Our attempts to give excuses or justify our sinfulness is a fruitless act. Now, I really want us to focus here today because I think this is probably the thing that has the most connection with us. Look what it says in Romans uh, verses 5 through 8. See if you can hear the questions they're asking him or see the ways that they are justifying or excusing their sins. Paul writes, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Okay, Paul, maybe we don't get an automatic pass. Maybe just being Jewish and being born in a Jewish home and being circumcised and doing all the ceremonies and all the rites and all the practice of of Judaism, uh, maybe doing all of that doesn't get us a pass. So maybe our sin is good. What do you think? Maybe it's a good thing. See, their first argument in verse 5 is, you know, our sinfulness is really a good thing because it helps people see how righteous God is right? So, so the worse I can be, the badder I can be. I never thought I'd say that before. You know, the, the badder I can be, the more good that shows God is. It's like there's some kind of a, a moral seesaw. And if I can really, really, really be bad, it somehow shows how good God is. That's a good argument, isn't it? So logically, if that's true, It would be unfair for God to punish our sin because all we're doing is we're doing Him a favor. We're making Him look good. Right? Now think about that. Think through that a minute. Listen, I'm going to make God look better by looking worse. Now, we may not think that that is um, something that we ever do. But I was raised during a time when the, the, the worse you were in your testimony, somehow the more spiritual you were now that you've been saved. You know, if you were just a 12-year-old boy like me, and you know, the worst thing I had done has been kind of you know smart mouth and a uh, little smart alecky, disobeyed my parents, probably cheated on something at school, lied to my parents when I got in trouble, that's kind of the worst thing I'd ever done. That's not really a cool testimony that God saved me from that, right? I mean, come on, it didn't save me from much. But man, if I was a hell's angel and I had raped, murdered, and pillaged the countryside and now God had saved me, somehow that's really, really a great thing. And people would actually embellish their testimonies. They'd actually embellish how bad they had been to prove how good God was. Folks, everything Paul's written over the last two chapters, he doesn't need our help to prove how bad we are our hearts are desperately wicked. They are self-centered. We are self-serving. Everything about us is about self. God doesn't need our help to look better by us looking worse. Paul says to him, come on, guys, that's ridiculous. No way is that right. God is righteous, even in his judgment, because they were basically saying, so basically it'd be unfair of God to judge me for being bad because I'm making him look good. I'm doing him a favor. By the way, you don't really do God any favors, okay? We may glorify him and honor him, but we are not, you know, doing him any favors. Paul's saying, listen, no way. God is righteous even in his judgment. He is the most fair. And by the way, just a reminder, the last thing you want from God is to be fair. Think about that. If my heart is desperately wicked and I am self centered at the core of my being, the last thing I want is for God to be just because I'll be in big trouble. I want God's mercy. I want God's grace. I don't want His judgment. He punishes sin, folks, because as a righteous God and judge, that's really the most fair thing to do. He has to punish sin. Then their second argument in verse 7 they say, okay. But if my sin highlights his righteousness and makes him shine and increases his glory, how can I still be condemned for my sin? It's similar to the first one, but this one they're just saying, if, if my, if my uh, you know, sinfulness just makes him shine like the top of the Christ they're building. You know? How can that be wrong? Then in verse 8, they say, In fact, the more we sin, the better it is, according to you, Paul. Right? So we should get up every morning and go, okay, my job today is to make God look good, so I'm going to do everything as horrible as I can. I'm going to treat my wife bad. I'm going to treat my kids bad. I'm going to treat the people at work bad. I'm going to cut people off in traffic. I'm going to do everything I can today to be the biggest jerk on the planet and sin as big as I can so it makes God look good. Paul says, Those who use these kinds of arguments are condemned. And by the way, they're not condemned for their sinfulness. They're condemned by their refusal to accept and acknowledge and confess their sinfulness. Folks, we're already all condemned for our sin. That's not on the table. That's not not even a discussion point. We're already condemned for our sinfulness, the wickedness in our hearts and our minds and what we have done. But when we refuse to accept that, when we refuse to acknowledge that and confess it, we are condemned again. We are condemned then eternally. Folks, we cannot out-argue the true fact that we are all sinners and we have not upheld the law and we deserve everlasting punishment from a righteous God for how we've lived god must punish sin because of his character and his rightness demands it he demands it he has no other choice if he doesn't punish sin then he's not righteous he's no longer good if he doesn't punish badness Now, listen, we look at that and we go, well, man, that's kind of a silly thing to say. I would never say, well, I'm just going to get up and be the baddest I can be today to, to prove how good God is. We wouldn't do that, right? We wouldn't justify our sins. Really? We may not do it for that reason, but do we ever think, you know, I should get up and help my wife in the kitchen, but man, she hasn't done much for me lately. You know, I ought to do these things for my husband today and really bless him, but, you know, the jerk hasn't done much for me lately. We ever think that? that? Do we ever think, you know, I'm going to cheat on my time card just a little bit at work. Frankly, they don't pay me enough anyway. I'm going to justify my sinfulness. You see, we may not justify our sinfulness by saying we're going to make God look better. But we do a lot of justifying. We do a lot of justifying. I was thinking about this this morning, and I should have put his picture up there, but I thought about President Nixon after he had been impeached, after he left office. One of the things that he said in his very first interview, he said, and I don't know if some of you are old enough or nerdy enough to remember this, but he said, listen, when the president does it, it's not illegal. What? But sometimes we justify those things. You know, we think we deserve a break from God and we don't have any personal responsibility for our sinfulness because we have some kind of privilege that exempts us from judgment. We may think that our parents or our church or our religion can save us. They can't, folks. They can't. While they may have certainly been a benefit to us, to our knowing and following God they're not the determining factor to really knowing God we may try to give excuses or justify our sins in some ways to make ourselves feel better or almost talk ourselves into believing that God's judgment wouldn't be fair because of our circumstances see you don't know how bad things are for me that's why I do these bad things sometimes we even blame him for those circumstances Think about Adam and Eve. You remember when they got caught doing what they're doing and God asked Adam, what has he done? What did he say? He said, God, it was the woman that you gave to me. He said, hey, it wasn't me, it was her. And by the way, you, you did it because you gave her to me and she did it to me. Now we laugh at that and we think that is just so silly to hear that, isn't it? But I think if we were on the Dr. Phil show and we had all those cameras in our house, I think we may occasionally hear ourselves or see ourselves behave that way. That it's not really my fault because somebody did something to me. And by the way, God even created the circumstances. But Here's the truth of what Paul's trying to say, folks. Paul's been writing really for some time now to help us not only know the level, know the level of our sinfulness, but to accept and acknowledge the depth of our depravity so that we will cry out to God, God, have mercy on me, a terrible sinner. Have mercy on me. And by the way, that that is the point when God points to his son on the cross for us to receive the gift of complete forgiveness by putting our faith and trust in Him and what He did on the cross to buy our salvation. You know, every uh, program uh, that helps people with addictions, uh, the first step is always you have to acknowledge there's a problem. As long as we deny the problem, there's just no hope to ever get better. If you deny that you're sick and you need medicine, You're not going to get better until you just admit you're sick and go get the medicine. And sometimes we don't want to admit, we don't want to recognize, we don't really want to believe that we really deserve hell, a place of eternal torment for our behavior, for the darkness of our heart and our minds. We want to believe that somehow we're good people. We're good. We're good people. You, I know you guys. You're good people, right? Well, we may be able to act good at times because of Christ in us, but we're not good people. We need to be careful that we don't ever fall into the trap of thinking in terms of good people and bad people in the world. The good people go to heaven, the bad people go to hell. That's not biblical, that's not good theology. Now, with Christ in us, we ought to be better. We certainly ought to be less bad, but when we begin to think in terms that everybody's good or everybody's either good or bad and that somehow determines something, we've fallen into a very serious trap. I've mentioned it before, but it's really interesting that when somebody dies, all of a sudden everybody on the planet is good, except for the really, 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 really bad people that are in in prison for life. Because every single person that dies, we say, well, they're in a better place. If they know Jesus, they're in a better place. But if they don't know Jesus, they're not in a better place. And I'm not saying that's the moment in time where you need to express that. But we need to stop saying things that aren't true theologically. We need to stop categorizing people in our minds as good people and bad people. Because the reality is, theologically, we're all rotten to the core. And the only good in us is what Jesus has done in us. That's it. That's it. And we need to acknowledge it. We need to confess it. We need to accept it. We need to live it. We need to talk it. Because here's the thing. There's a bunch of people outside these doors. There's a bunch of people outside these doors. You could throw a rock from our parking lot and hit a bunch of their houses. And by the way, it's the same in my neighborhood that don't know God. They don't know Christ. They haven't put their faith and trust in what Jesus has done for them. And if we get in our minds that somehow they're bad people and we're the good people, we are never, we are never, we are never going to be who God wants us to be in the kingdom. We need to realize that we're all bad people together. The only thing is God's opened our eyes so far to the grace and the mercy of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And we need to be messengers of that to those other people who aren't any worse than we are. They're just still cut off from God because they haven't heard the message yet or they haven't responded to it yet. Listen, Paul is talking to these Jews about their their arguments because he knows what they're going to say. He knows what they're going to think. And what he's saying to them is, look, guys, yeah, there's a benefit to being a Jew, but it doesn't save you. And by the way, if somehow you feel like God's giving you a raw deal, it's not God's fault. It's you. If you're far away from God right now, it's not because God's running away from you. It's because you're running away from him. And we need to think about and talk about in our community groups next week. This thing, because folks, it's a fruitless act. We might be able to convince somebody or even ourselves that somehow this is okay, but it's not okay to God it's not okay to God, and we need to recognize that and accept it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word again that teaches us and calls us to accept the truth about ourselves. God, help us never to begin to think that somehow you're really lucky to have us on your team. Somehow you're really blessed to have me as part of your family. God, help us never think that way. We are so incredibly blessed and fortunate that somebody shared the gospel with us so that in our wickedness, in our darkness of heart and mind, you opened our eyes. The gospel was shared with us, and we got an opportunity to respond to it. Lord, I pray if there are people here today who may not have crossed that line of faith yet, they would say that that I admit and I know that I'm a sinner, but I don't know what to do about it. Lord, I pray that they would ask somebody before they leave today. I I pray that they would talk to somebody before they leave today about how to make that right. Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of salvation that comes through what Jesus did on the cross. Help us now to live in that. Help us now to live differently because of that. We know that there is no good in us but what Jesus does in us. And so we pray, Lord, that we would yield more and more to him and be less and less of who we are in our flesh. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.